The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. And welcome to the show, everyone. Ready for a great show today. But first, a special shout-out to my good friend, Yoshiko Dart. Yoshiko, going to love this show because our guest is AAPD, and I know how you love that, Yoshiko. Yoshiko Dart is the wife of the late Justin Dart, and she is just an unbelievable advocate for people with disabilities and has kept that dream alive. So uh, kudos to you, Yoshiko. Well, why I'm so excited about this show today is for many reasons. First, our guest I met through the board of AAPD, just a wonderful person. Number two, he's one of the most motivational people I have met. I mean, he is just superstar material. And number three is my friend. So what more could we want other than number four? He has a great radio voice, which you will soon hear. So John Register is the Associate Director, Community and Military Programs, Paralympics Division for the U.S. Olympic Committee and the U.S. Paralympics Division. John Register, welcome to the show. Joyce, I am so honored to be on your show today. Uh, I think this is our second time, so I am ecstatic that you thought so kindly to bring me back. So thank you, Joyce. You are more than welcome. Um, And, John, if you read about John, it seems like from when he was growing up, he was an athlete forever, really into (laughs) athletics, very successful. And my first question is, you know, John, many things happened to you after that you had to deal with challenges, uh, perception, and just a new way of life. My question is, do you believe your background in sports helped prepare you for all this? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I think it's an aggregate, Joyce. I think it's an aggregate of, of all of our experiences, all of my experiences, that helps uh, perpetuate and, and move the needle forward in my life right now. So, for example, yes, of course, I was an athlete uh, growing up on the west side of Chicago in Oak Park, Illinois. I played a myriad of sports. But at the same time, I, was, I, I had other interests. I, I liked, uh, I thought the bass guitar was actually a cello. So I wound up playing the cello for six and seven years uh, in, in, high, in high school. I liked uh the English uh, language and and poets and poetry. Uh, so I studied a lot of a lot of poets, and um, I, I really appreciated the work that they did. And I had the entrepreneurial spirit because when I was a kid, and the L train would stop on Ridgeland Avenue, I was up there with my lemonade stand selling little cups for five cents in those Dixie cups, 
and making a, making a profit. So I think all those things uh, really were because of how I was raised with my, my parents uh, always instilling and believing in us that we could actually do anything we, we set our mind to do, that nothing would be able to hold us back. Uh, so I think that's where that, that mindset came from. Well, no, no doubt about it, because you, not only from your family and for uh, what they instilled in you, but even in sports, you know, you have to learn teamwork, uh, persistence, overcoming challenges, so many things that would come into play later in your life because you had an incredible opportunity to move towards the Olympics because of your very successful career in track and field. But something happened um, later on to change that. But during that time of your life, what, what was that like during that time? Didn't you go to Arkansas? Um, and, and what were these sports that had you in line to go into the Olympics? Yeah, so I, I, was, I excelled in track and field. That was my the sport that I was kind of pushed toward because I did have some speed and I ran the high hurdles, also ran the 300 meter intermediate hurdles and I long jumped and that earned me a partial scholarship down to the university of Arkansas from Illinois. And I began running with the Razorback track and field team and unbeknownst to me, and it didn't really know how the team would play out, but Arkansas became one of the most winningest teams in collegiate athletic history, and the coach John McDonald, of course, is the most in any sport any of any college coach. He is the, the one that has won the most <laughs> college championships uh, for, for, the, for the Razorbacks. And as I, as I went down there, I was surrounded by these incredible people, those that were on the Olympic team, those that had a high sense of, of sustainability from year after year. How do you win conference championships and national championships over and over again? It's one of the things I do talk about now as, as far as my presentation and speaking goes, is how to create an atmosphere or a culture of excellence that is always sustaining excellence. And that's one of the, the things I took away. But you're right. Athletics opened doors up that I never even knew existed. So when you talk about a uh, high level of athleticism, you know, I really put it into the category of Olympic sport for track and field. Uh, and that, for me, was I went to, because of the preparation of Arkansas and earning four All-American honors there, I was in an environment that produced – uh, the uh, such a high level of athleticism that I went to uh, two Olympic trials in three different events. So I went in '88 in the, in the long jump and the high hurdles, and then in 1992 I went in the um, in the 400 meter hurdles, and that was as a part of the Army's world class athlete program. So after Arkansas, I actually joined the Army to continue to run track on the Army's world class athlete program and went to my second Olympic trials as a soldier. But the, the but the um, but the the excellence was was is still definitely at the University of Arkansas. Wow, well that is so impressive. But then something happened. Something happened that changed the course of your life. Um, and uh, wow, what a change it was! And it was due <laughs> to right. a very serious injury. Can you talk about that? Oh, of course, yeah. You know, Joyce, when. In, in life, and I talk to athletes all the time now about transition. 
and making sure that you they have a track that maybe their athletic track and career track there, but they also do have a parallel track to that, which is their career path that they will take after athletics is over. And I don't look at the two. Um, I do look at the, them similar in that they're parallel and they're running at the same time because you never know when you're going to have to change the siding or switch the track over from the the uh, the athletic track over to the career track because the career track is the athletic track for a, a, a point in some person's life. If you think about a basketball player, they start playing basketball maybe at six or seven years old and they end at between 28 and 29 if they make it to the professional league. They have had a career of playing basketball, which, which most of our careers start after college. But what happened to me was when I was training for the 1996 Olympic Games, I had one of the three things that derail an athlete. Athletes will derail in one of three ways. The, the, the first way is they, they will um, not be talented enough. The second thing, and some of us will be always more talented, the second way is that they'll win all the medals in their life, they'll make the NBA championships, and they'll just age out. But the third way is that they will have a career-ending injury, and that's what happened to me. I was training on May 17, 1994, on the hurdles, 400-meter hurdle race in Hayes, Kansas, as a part of the Army's world-class athlete program. I was just ranked as the eighth-fastest hurdler in the country, having run a sub-50-second 400-meter hurdle race the week prior in, in a meet in, in uh, Texas. And during the, my warm-up session, as I had to meet the next day, I was running over the first three hurdles. Now, for the audience, you have to understand how fast my body was moving at that time. And if you picture this, it's, it's 3.8 meters per second, which translates to just over 18 miles per hour. And I always joke with my audience and say, you know, three more miles per hour, and the police officers would give me a speeding ticket for going through a school zone. So I am moving fast over these hurdles. Now, how fast are wind- you moving? How fast? So a little over 18 miles per hour. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, that it's is just, fast. Go it's ahead. moving pretty quick, you know. Yeah. And so, so now the wind's blowing really hard, and in hurdles, in the 400-meter hurdles, you want to set – the athlete wants to set up his or her steps correct so that they will have a good race. And I take 21 steps out of the blocks to the first hurdle, and then I take 13 steps down the backstretch for the next four hurdles. But on this day when the wind was blowing, I couldn't get those steps to come right. And as I approached the third hurdle, I knew I was going to be short – and have to take it with my left leg leading. Uh, and that was my non-dominant leg. When I landed, I heard a snap. And then I fell. And by the time I fell, I did a once over my body, and I looked down at my left leg, and the knee had dislocated. It was the, the, the patella had risen about four, uh, three inches up my femur bone, and my Right leg was canted. My left leg was canted across my right leg. My foot pointed down. Oh my god! Oh, that's it was terrible. Horrific. And uh, yeah, and and so you know what goes through your mind? What goes through my mind when tragedy strikes like that? The first thing was I wanted to just get up, just push myself back up. And of course, my leg looking like the letter L. That was not going to happen. And I began to think about career and what was going on and Olympics. A lot of stuff came in my head. 
the the athletes that were around me, my army athletes, they comforted me, they consoled me uh, by singing songs and hymns. And the ambulance got there. It took 90 minutes. It took 90 minutes for the ambulance to come from Hayes. Hayes. Um, and I was taken to the hospital where I had a knee reduction. The doctor popped my leg back into place. I passed out. And I woke up some hours later in and out of surgeries. I remember the fifth day, the doctor came in and said, you know, you got to make a tough decision. That decision is you can either keep your limb and use a ride a wheelchair or use a walker for the rest of your life, or you can take an amputation and walk on a prosthesis for the rest of your life. I was like, you know, what, what, kind, of, what kind of choice is that? For a four-time All-American, three times been to the Olympic trials, or two times been to the Olympic trials, three different events, eighth fastest hurdler by USA Track and Field um, News. And now here I am having to make the, one of the toughest calls in my life to, to take a limb off that's been with me for 29 years of my life that's helped me to, to long jump and power me through life, and now I have to lose it. And that was tough, you know, and I share that with audiences and of, in, in a very real way because we all face tough challenges in our lives. And, and sometimes, or I think most of the time, the tough decisions are, and the hardest decisions are the right decisions. You know, we can either coast with an easy decision or we can make the harder choice and, and let life move forward and get the pain portion behind us. And it was the pain that really spoke, Joyce. It was the pain that spoke. And, the, and I wanted to get that leg off of me. I figured if the, if the leg went, the pain would go. <laughs> but I didn't know about phantom pains, <laughs> which <laughs> came later. And that was, that was, the, it was a difficult, it was a very difficult time. Now, sure. may I ask, why did they, what caused this that you had, that you would either be in a wheelchair or had to amputate your leg? What was the injury? Obviously, mm-hmm. it was even more significant than just a broken leg. It was obviously more involved. Sure. In, during, in the fall, what I had not realized was that the popliteal artery behind the kneecap, it's a very small artery. That takes you know blood arteries take blood to away from our heart, and my the lower portion of my leg because that artery was blocked was not getting any blood flow oh during my. the reduction of the knee when the knee was popped back into place they still the doctors still were not getting a reading of blood flow going to the lower portion of my limb so they knew there, were, there must still be a blockage or something happening I needed to get to a vascular surgeon and there was no vascular surgeon in Hayes so I was flown to Wichita Kansas to the Wesley Medical Center where Dr. Randy Mullins, a brilliant surgeon who was doing, about to go to the Mayo Clinic, um, he wound up doing the surgery uh, as a resident and wound up and, and uh, you know, just did the best he could. But I think because of the time from the point of injury to the time to get on the operating table and the, and the flight for life and all those things, it really just uh, was, it was too much. It was too long for the um, – for the, for the time and for, to adequately repair the knee and the and the artery and the lower portion of the limb. Well, yeah, it took even ninety minutes for the ambulance right to come and right. get you. Well, John, exactly. that you know, talk about a hard decision when someone says this to you. So you went ahead and you had the amputation, and after that amputation. How, what did you think? How, how did you feel? Well, I had a lot of thoughts that were going through my mind, Joyce. You know, for the first time, and the, 
Uh, I, I talk about my the in, in a very real and emotional terms of the night I woke up in the in the hospital bed and the pain that was coming from where my knee was, where I thought my knee was, was even more excruciating than before I went into the surgery. And there was no one in the room. My family, my wife was there, but she was at the hotel with my son, John Jr. And, they t- and, and she would tell me later they were supposed to call me when you woke up because I was with, with our son, John, who was five, five years old at the time. My mother was there, too, and you know, so she was getting her, her rest because they said I was so knocked out, I'd be knocked out from surgery. But what happened was I woke up at about 1130 at night in this, because with this excruciating pain, and I was unable and too weak to roll over and push the morphine button to get me some morphine and, and ease the pain. Uh, and I was also too weak to roll over to push the call button to get the nurse's attention. And the tubes that were down my throat made my voice inadequate to call out to the nurse's aid station. So I just sat there, laid there in that bed with this pain. And when I looked down to see where the pain was coming from, I looked down, and for the first time in my 29-year-old life, I saw that I did not have a left leg. And it was devastating because now my dreams really are over for the Olympics. And I was left there to sit with my dangerous thoughts. Who am I now? What is my identity? Is my wife going to stick around? Because of who I am now? Is my, is my son going to still see me as his dad? How will my parents view me? How will society see me now? Do I still have a job in the United States Army? Can I still support my family? All these were fears that I had that were coming in. So I have to ask myself these, this question, and I, I found out, discovered it later, uh, and I talk about it in my keynote addresses, is that you know, I, I really believe I did not overcome the adversity. Because most people think, as I thought, that overcoming the adversity is overcoming the amputation. But if I overcome the amputation, Joyce, that means I would have my leg back. What I overcame, what I have to overcome are the fears that I have. And I have to wrestle with why are those fears there in the first place? And that we can talk about a little bit later. But it was um, Alice. At, at, at 7.30, Dr. Randy Mullins comes back in the room, takes one look at me, sees I've done a 180-degree change. I have flipped. And he sees the despair up in my face. He sees it in my eyes. He calls Alice from the hotel to come over. They get me into a wheelchair, and I ride a wheelchair out to the park as she pushes me out. And as I watch her and my son, John Jr., in this little park at the Wesley Medical Center in the courtyard, play and I'm in this wheelchair and I can't get out of that chair because I'm too weak and I can't get over to where the swings are because it's an inaccessible playground. I just sit there and I lose it. I just begin to cry uncontrollably. And my wife, Alice, she sees me struggling and she comes running over and she says, what's going on? What's, what's happening? And I began to articulate to her every single thing, all my fears that I had the night before. And then she stopped the, said to me, and she stopped my downward spiral by saying the words, you know what, John? We are going to get through this 
together. It is just our new normal. It's just our new normal. And when I began to begin to think and hear the words of this new normal, John Jr. jumps off the swing, being five years old, comes running over to mom and dad, saying, Daddy, Daddy, what's going on? It's okay, it's okay, Daddy. jumps into my lap, and he has just validated me as his father. He has just created his new normal. I had to get my mindset off of being disabled. And what I mean by that, Joyce, is the word of disabled, of being inactive, ineffective, uh, not pushing forward. It was the first time I thought that I could not do something. I understand now that it has nothing to do with the word, and I can use the word as an empowerment. But at that, at that point in time, I was out of it, and I had to change that situation. And she was the one, Alice was the one that was the first voice to push me into this new normal acceptance. And whether we, we want to argue the point, whether it's I'm a person with a disability and see me first and then my disability second, or whether it's my environment that disables me or it's my environment that's disabled and I'm not. So if I'm using a wheelchair, the playground was disabled, not me. We have to be able to articulate that and help other individuals. And I felt that my mantra at that point was to get up and begin to push myself into all aspects of life that I had previously. And doing so actually helped me discover even more. You know what? I know if you're listening to the show right now, you are, this is just such a riveting story. I'm going to tell you, I heard it before, and it impacts me the same. Actually, I feel something different every time. Why am I bringing this up? Because what I haven't talked about yet is that John is today a motivational speaker. And, John, what is the name of your company? The name of the company is called Inspired Communications International, and then it's an LLC. And what is that website? Uh, the website is just my name, so it's www.johnregister.com. www.johnregister.com, is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, that's, that's okay. how folks can find me. All right. Now, if I were you, I'm going to tell you, I've seen and heard him speak at an event, and like you could hear a pin drop, but he is so motivational and such a great speaker that I would highly encourage you to go to johnregister.com and get in touch with him and tell everyone you know, because this is a great convention speaker. He is awesome. Um, and I oh, you can tell you, just by hearing that story right now that when he tells the story, it's as if you're right there when it happened. It, it is. As if you're right there and the feeling after um, and the validation after of his wife and family. Just an unbelievable story. It really is. So uh, I want to make sure that, and I'll remind you about that again. Uh, but, John, as you said, when you woke up, you realized you were an amputee and that you'd lost your leg. 
uh, and that everything would change. I do have a question. How did your friends or acquaintances, did they treat you differently after the accident? That is a brilliant question. And I think that goes back to the fears of when I was in that hospital bed of people not thinking that people would not accept me. So that gave me some insight into myself previously of why was I looking for the attention? Why was I looking for the acceptance? What was going on with that? Because most of what I found, Joyce, is that my friends that were around me, they became my fierce friends around me. They were, um, you know, there were a few that weren't. There were a few that were kind of negative, but they revealed themselves to me in that they were not going to allow me to fail, just like Alice, my wife, my wife was going to allow me to fail. The doctors, the nurses around me were all positive. Even the fact that I had a, they called it a firefighter um, come in who had been hitting a double alarm fire and he lost both of his legs, became a double leg amputee. He came in and encouraged me in the hospital room. And so looking at him as a double-leg amputee and I'm as a single-leg amputee, I said, well, man, I, he's got both legs gone. I got, I got one leg gone. And so two beats one, so you get, you get more, more from me than, than, I, than I get, right? So uh, and then the Army, the United States Army, uh, I was on my way to officer candidate school. And to look at how the Army could turn this soldier in this bed with his one leg now who was waiting for a class date for officer candidate school, they, they helped to write another chapter in my life. You know, um, they gave me another chance at serving my country in a different capacity, actually, with inside the United States Army's world-class athlete program as a sports specialist. One of the things that we always talk about, Joyce, is that the unemployment rate for people with disabilities is abysmal. And in the, in this, in the light of this, you know, kind of forecast a little bit forward, but I had employment. And it wasn't because of the disability, it was because of the, the competence that I had with a degree and could actually run, do the job that I was, that I was um, being asked to do. And a lot of our athletes, our Paralympic athletes, you know, they're, they don't get the same shot. They're going to school. They're going to great universities and institutions. They're getting master degrees and doctor degrees. We had a, a, a Paul G. Hearn Award winner, Anjali Forber Pratt. And, you know, she's writing books, and we have Dr. Sherry Blowett, who was up in, in Boston, and she's a Hearn Award winner. Uh, and they had to go so long before people just saw their true value of what was in their headspace and not looked at their bodies of, of them being wheelchair riders. And we have to do a lot to, to change that attitude in our, in our country because there's, and it's just not service industry jobs or, you know, there, there are jobs in the professional market for, for people with disabilities. And I, became, I had to become an advocate, but I, that's, that's another, we'll get down the road to, to that, I'm sure. But the, wow. the question is, those folks, they, they, they believed in me because of who I was, not because of who I thought I was, the stigma I had against myself, or who outside of that world, that bubble, might have seen me if I, if I didn't have uh, the credentials behind me of an athlete, of a scholar, of all these other of musician, all these other things that were around me, and just a, a just a great positive attitude. You know, no one wants to be around negativity, so we we tried to 
always put the best foot forward. And that's another stigma that often gets labeled on to people with disabilities. We see it all the time in, in movies, right? We see the villain has always has some type of disability. Well, why does the villain have to have a disability? Why can't the hero have one? Right. So, you know, that's, that's, those are the things that we see in our society, and it permeates with how the perceptions are of people who, you know, get, get jobs. And, and the, we, we need them, and you, that's exactly what you do and your listeners. Um, and it's not a charitable thing. It's, it's something because we want to show the, the, the value and then the economic power uh, moving forward of a person who, can, who is designed to work. Yeah, all they need is the chance. That is so true. All they need is the opportunity. Hey, we're going to get ready to go to break. Before we go to break, I have to thank Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield and Covestro Corporation for being sponsors of Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Thank you so much. We're going to go to break, and then we'll be right back with John Register. This is Joyce Bender. America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. At Highmark, we believe what makes us different makes us better. Our differences broaden our perspectives and foster diverse skills which complement each other, creating a stronger and more vibrant workforce. It's this belief that earned us recognition by the USBLN and the American Association of People with Disabilities as a 2014 Disability Equality Index Best Place to Work. So we'll continue to celebrate diverse individuals because inclusion benefits us all. To find out more, visit Highmark.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, if you just joined us, we're talking to John Register, who is the Associate Director, Community and Military Programs, works with the U.S. Olympics Committee and the Paralympics, which we're going to talk about right now. And also, John, what is your company? Inspired Communications International. Website. 
And the website is www.johnregister.com. We are trying to change the lives by using uh, having people hurdle their adversities and creating their life's new normal. All right. Make sure you check that out, everyone. John, I know that you are, as we've already indicated, very involved with the U.S. Paralympics, and I know it's coming up this year in Brazil. Um, Let's talk about that. Tell me what's new, what's going on. Yeah, a lot of things are going on great in Paralympics. And for those in the audience that may not know, Paralympic sports are for athletes with physical disabilities and or visual uh, impairments and visual uh, disabilities. Uh, Most of the time it gets confused with Special Olympics and Special Olympics schools with cognitive uh, impairments. And and another difference between the two is Paralympics are the parallel games to the Olympics and follow the Olympic Games by two weeks in the same venue. So when Joyce says that, you say correctly, it's in Rio de Janeiro. We have the Olympics that will be in July, Paralympics in September, just following right along afterward. Uh, so it's going to be a great time. Uh, with inside of, in Special Olympics, it's, it's, not, it's, it's participatory in nature, and uh, so it's more, more like everybody gets the ribbon. Where in Paralympics, it's, uh, again, those with amputations, those who are wheelchair riders, those who are blind, those who are, have cerebral palsy, maybe even spina bifida, uh, and those who have, uh, what else, um, uh, I think those are, uh, yeah, CP, so we have, those are pretty much all the can, and blind, so we have those categories, dwarfism as well. Uh, so the Paralympic Games is something that I found at, when I, I kind of fell into, I was swimming, swimming for physical therapy and wound up understanding or finding this new world of this parallel world of sport. And as I swam for my physical therapy, I kept getting faster and faster in the water and wound up making the Paralympic swim team. So instead of going to Atlanta as a 400-meter hurdler, I went to Atlanta as a Paralympic swimmer. And I said, you know, wow, that's, God's got a crazy sense of humor for that. But it was there that I saw these athletes competing on the track and field in the field events of the long jump with artificial limbs. And I'd never seen an athlete do this. And so as this athlete went down a long jump run, went and jumped, I was amazed by it. So two years later, I had a leg made for running, went to Sydney, Australia on the Paralympic team and the, and the long jump, and actually won the silver medal in the long jump, which gets us to the question at hand, what's changed in Paralympic sport? The greatest thing that's changed in Paralympic sport from when I competed to right now is that the governance of Paralympic sport is underneath the auspices of the United States Olympic Committee. It was done by Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska uh, before he passed away because he was one of the authors of the Amateur Sports Act. And because Paralympics is now aligned with the United States Olympic Committee, we have the, the, the usage of a lot of the, the resources to promote and advance Paralympic sport in our country, one of which will be uh, NBC and their commitment now this year uh, unprecedented in our country to produce 66 hours of television for Paralympic athletes in our hemisphere. The reason why this is important goes back to something you said earlier, Joyce, and that is when we played the games in school and we saw the value that we still use right now today in, in our job markets, um, a lot of time references are thrown out for people who have played sports. 
And so if you're young and you're like me on the playground and you're playing kickball or capture the flag or, or Red Rover, Red Rover, at recess time, teams were picked by two captains. And then other people that weren't picked kind of went to go play other things. But who was never picked were the kids that have disabilities. So they never got a chance to understand the teamwork, winning gracefully, losing with dignity, uh, boasting for the day, uh, this sense of non-entitlement, that you earn what you earn. You win, you win. You lose, you lose. All these things that we, we learn uh, as an aggregate growing up, our kids with disabilities don't have. And so working now with Paralympics, I get a chance to use the, the platform and the voice of the United States Olympic Committee to really help change the dynamic for those kids who are growing up. We have a Gateway to Gold program, which is an encompassing program to, uh, to try to seek out Paralympic talent at the elite level, but also push into the grade school programs at the K-12 level by using the Office of Civil Rights Guidelines and the Dear Colleague Letter to remind schools around the country that they should be doing programming uh, for, uh, for their students with disabilities in the school. Because as we know from the UN Convention, disabilities in sport is not a nice to have, it is a right to have. <clears throat> so we wanna make sure our kids are getting the same right as other, as other students are getting in the school system. So a lot has changed. We now have uh, athletes that the, the young kids can look up to as role models. Uh, on, when I was playing the game, you know, my role models always seemed to change from time to time if it was in the area of sport. You know, for one time in, in hurdles, I'm looking at Ronaldo Nehemiah or uh, a Greg Foster, who was from my community. But now I get a chance to have these athletes look to role models who will be competing in Rio de Janeiro and they can see it right from their television set because of the, the 66 committed hours from NBC. Wow. And, and you know what, John, you did participate and you won a medal, right? I did. So in, in 2000 in Sydney, Australia, I returned to the track and won, uh, won a medal in the, in the long jump. And I talk a lot about that in the business community. I have, I'm writing a book now. It really has to do with lessons on leadership I learned on my way to the Paralympic podium. <clears throat> um, and that is, I have a chapter that's kind of done that's, that's dedicated to entitlement. Uh, and that's a big problem I think, across the world right now that we don't, we, we think that we deserve things that we have not yet earned. So as I'm sitting on the silver, uh, Nike has a great commercial out. They had a great commercial out with Lisa Leslie phenomenal basketball player on the Olympic side and in the WNBA, and they show her dunking a basketball after she does all these phenomenal moves. And then the title says on the bottom of it, you don't win silver, you lose gold. And so, wow. Isn't that a great <laughs> saying? Yeah. yeah. I used to, but I used to think that, right? Because that gets to this, as I thought about it a couple of weeks ago, as I looked at my silver medal, I was like, did I actually lose the silver? I mean, lose the gold? And I, as I thought about it deeper, Joyce, it was like, well, that's really not the right statement to say. And here's why I say that. It wasn't the effort <clears throat> that I did. <clears throat> excuse me. It wasn't the effort that I did. It was the effort that was earned by Lucas Christian, who actually won the gold medal. 
I would be taking away from him saying that I should have won gold. No, he won the gold. He earned the gold. I earned the silver. Victor Gorenson earned the bronze. And I think that, you know, we live in a society now that it's not that I was going for the silver medal or Victor was going for the, the bronze medal. All three of us were going for the gold medal. But they only award one, and you have to earn it. Uh, so we have to be satisfied in earning what we earn. We see it a lot of times now, I think, in our society when it comes to debt. Every household, average household, has two credit cards. Each one of those credit cards has about $4,000 of debt on it. That's to a, an experience study that was done back in 2015. So the debt signifies that we have bought things that we have not yet paid for. We haven't earned them. So we have to look, I think, with a different lens, and I, and I get businesses to understand, you've, you earn what you earn, so you got to put forth the effort, and you got to put forth the expertise and all of the, the pieces to the puzzle. But at the end of the day, somebody's going to be number one on the Forbes one, top 100 companies list, and somebody's going to be number 100. So you, you just earn what you earn, however the parameters are with inside of that. And so let's look at how we can move up the ladder. And then for the, the ones that are in the top three, how do you sustain that? Well, you know what? That, that we, is we talk a, about in business. That, you know, I agree with you 100% about that entitlement. I really do. But, you know, I do have to ask you a question. What made you decide to become an advocate? Yeah, there was a, a, a very specific thing that happened. I returned to track and field at a, at a conference, and I went to um, – I'd gone to a couple conferences before as, a, as an able-bodied athlete, and I was told that I was now in this new category, and it was not a category that, that I thought at the time was very much appreciated by the, the, uh, the, the folks at USA Track and Field, and I found that I couldn't even vote anymore just because I had lost this leg. You know, now whether it was true or not, I didn't know, but somebody sure told me that. And um, so I said, so you mean last year when I was here as, as an athlete in the hurdles development committee, I had a vote to, for, for this stuff, but because we're not official member on the Paralympic side, I no longer have a vote. That is ludicrous. So I began looking at all these disparities between um, – what I enjoyed as an able-bodied athlete and, and then as a, as, a, uh, as a Paralympic athlete, one of which, Joyce, was this word inspiration. I, I, really, I really struggled with that for a long time. And because when I was at Arkansas or when I was at the, in the military or when I was at the Olympic trials, a sports writer would come over and write about me. When I became an athlete with a disability, there was no longer a sports writer coming over to write about my athletic performance, but a human interest writer putting me on the inspirational page in the Metro section. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense. And as I began to vet that out, I began to have some disdain for it. I, I, and even several times even turned down interviews because I wanted a sports writer to come out, validate who I was. But it wasn't until I came back from the, 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 the Sydney Games in Australia sitting in a gate-waiting area in an airport in shorts, reading a USA Today newspaper, that a woman, her two boys, five and seven, made a new discovery, and they were looking at my artificial leg, and they're saying, hey, Mommy, there's a robot man over there. <laughs> and 
And as I chuckled and laughed, um, the the, the gate waiting audience, the the, the audience in the in the gate waiting area, their conversation was, you know, shut that those kids up. That's impolite. It's impolite to stare. I wish you know, teach those kids some manners. And the woman gets up to begins to walk in my direction. I think she's gonna just walk by me. But no, she stops and she says, you know what, excuse me, sir, my children are fascinated by your artificial leg. Would you please tell them what happened? Now, I'm struck. I'm taken aback. No one's ever asked me that question before, not in such a public setting. And I realized that I got a formulated response. And I also realized that everybody else in the gate-winning area has now ceased their conversation, put their papers down, and are now leaning in to hear what I'm going to say. And so as I begin to tell them the story of the injury and then the recovery and the swimming and the Paralympic Games in, in Sydney, um, and I had the silver medal with me. I took it out and I put it around the boy's neck. And immediately, their smiles that came on their face were, were amazed. They were amazed. The, 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 the lady, after she said, well, that's an incredible story, and then she, she wound up asking me for an autograph for two boys. She gave me my medal back, <laughs> thank goodness. And then off they walked. You know, they thank me for my time, and off they walked. The conversations in the gate-winning area also changed. How cool was that? Did you see that? That was amazing. Those kids' lives will never be the same. I'm like, never be the same. What are they talking about? So that story happened 15 years ago, 16 years ago now. Where are they? Are they now the HR directors? Are they the ones that, because of that one experience, they now see a person with a disability different? They now look at the resume instead of the, the person that, that, that wheels in the door or comes in with their cane or seeing or seeing eye dog or, or, or some type of other disability or maybe goes to ethnicity, gender? Are they changed because of this one experience? And I began to think how selfish of me to only want to be written about on the sports page and not the human interest page. How selfish of me to want to be um, the sports guy and not the inspiration. And so what, what I disdained became my mantra. If I had the power to affect people I wanted to give other people that power as well. So I believe that inspiration is a catalyst. I don't call myself a motivational speaker. I'm an inspirational speaker because inspiration is the catalyst to motivation. Before we are motivated, something needs to move us. Something needs to inspire us. Something that we've seen, acted upon in our life will, will inspire us to be motivated. What does the motivation do? Motivation in turn causes action. We do something about it, and the action creates and produces a result, and that result either re-inspires us or allows other people that are watching this process to catch the vision, and then they become they, they begin that inspirational cycle themselves. So it's not about me. It's about my audience becoming the inspiration, and what that does to a business, if you can inspire from the leadership all the way down that, that, that the folks know your message, they will then be motivated to act upon the information that, that you have given them. So I flipped that business model on the head. If you want the results, you better be inspiring the workforce. You better be the inspirational leader. If not, you're missing it. You're missing the opportunity. That is so, you know what, John, I could listen to you talk forever. You know something, you, many things you said struck me, but the one part about where are those two boys today? Oh, yes. that's so powerful. Are they in HR? Are they a manager? Uh, I, I mean, that did have an impact, I'm sure, 
And that is why when you get out there and you're not ashamed that you have a disability, I know you know, and many of my listeners know that I'm living with epilepsy, but I always hope that, that when I tell someone else that, like a young person that's living with epilepsy, that they see, hey, I can make it, and hey, I don't have to be ashamed. Um, And that is why, when you're listening to the show, I want to really point out to you that disability is a community of people, but we are proud, and we're not ashamed, and, you know, neither should you be. That's right. Well, John, I'll tell you what. Before we end the show, I have to say that you are unbelievable, all the things you have done and accomplished. There's always a someone that is that impact. So I have to ask you that question. Who is your role model? (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know, it's it's easy and it's tough to answer that question Uh, because they they don't change. But I I will tell you the ones that, that really have made significant impact in my life for, uh, for various seasons as, um, as, as well as, um, uh, even, even right now that I still learn from their, their, their tutelage. Um, first of all, I think my, this was my mom and dad, but most of a lot, my, my father, I mean, he, when I think back now and him working downtown Chicago at the Presbyterian of Chicago, and I would have football practice, or baseball practice, he would make sure that he came from his job to watch practice, right? Who does that anymore? Um, and because of that, it, it showed me that being present is the present, the gift. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's great to say you're going to be there, but showing up really is a gift. Um, so that was one thing I, I learned very, and then later on I, I saw that he was a civil rights activist. He was jailed for in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, and I saw the full extent of change that he and these other nine white ministers did down in Hattiesburg and changing, uh, that now that the judge that threw them in jail is no longer, um, there cause he's dead, <laughs> but has been replaced with an African American female on the court. That's, that's incredible. So we can change, we can change the world. My wife, Alice, she is amazing. Well, I told you what she did for me that, that day out there on the, on the, um, on the playground. And now she's a flight attendant, uh, with Southwest airlines She's actually going, going through that. And so she gets, to, she gets to impact people all the time. Can you imagine now Southwest airlines who was, who was supporting AAPD's, uh, gala coming up <laughs> Um, can you imagine that airline having somebody like her welcoming and greeting people that has that oh. much caring, that much compassion? Right. That, that, they made the right call there. They made the right call. And she's down in tr- flight training school right now, so um, they don't even know this, right? But they, they made the right call with her. And then, um, and then I, I would think, you know, one of my best bosses I ever, ever had was Colleen Amstein who after I was actually fired from the world-class athlete program because I, I would not do something that was unethical, she, she picked me up, and what she did was she poured into me and, and told me, she taught me again about value and how to, how to invest in people. And, so, and, and um, 
And another person that also taught me that was uh, Jeanette Bolden, UCLA uh, gold medalist in the 4x100 meter relay team in 1984. And she, she taught me that see the value in others before they see the value in themselves. That, that's leadership. That's leadership. Wow. Uh, Charles Lee, who's my best friend, and we, we just, I mean, over the past two years, uh, I coached with him. He coaches speed track and field club, and I, I coached the hurdles with him. He's a, a huge inspiration to me. Well, um, you have yeah. some great role models that have had yeah, an impact yeah. on you. And, and it, John, first of all, I want to thank you for being uh, our guest today. I mean, I think anyone listening to this show will realize why I would reach out to Inspire Communications International and reach out to John and tell everyone to follow the Paralympics on TV. That is so important. Tell everyone you know. Um, and we end every show with a quote, and today the quote is, the only limit to our validation of tomorrow will be our doubts of today, said Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Thank you again, John Register. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.